Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. This is about choosing what areas in life could I be a bit more curious and interested, a bit less afraid of failure, a bit more willing to stretch myself. That's what growth mindset is. You know, failure is part of life. And inevitably, things will go wrong, we'll have setbacks. And what that gives us is an opportunity to learn. I was advised by a very wise person that looking for a job is a full-time job in itself. Thank you so much for joining me on episode three of Reframe and Reset Your Career. I really do appreciate your support. I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Whitehall as my guest today. Lucy is a master's level coach and employee wellbeing specialist. As a positive psychologist, Lucy uses evidence-based approaches to help people tackle unhelpful assumptions and behaviors in order to enhance levels of psychological, emotional, and physical well-being. Lucy offers over 20 years of experience in employee well-being and has experience establishing well-being strategies that help employees flourish and businesses succeed. Lucy is a qualified mindfulness guide and holds a world-recognized master's in applied positive psychology and coaching psychology from the University of East London. Welcome, Lucy. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Harsha. Thank you. No, it's my pleasure. So I first had the pleasure of meeting Lucy five years ago on a Managing Change course, which she presented. It was the first time that a personal development course really resonated with me, as she introduced me to the concepts of growth mindset and neuroscience, as well as the lovely Dory Clark. This inspired me to start my personal development journey, which has eventually led to to today's podcast. So thank you, Lucy. Oh, it's really exciting for me, Harsha, to to be here and to have followed you on your personal development journey and to feel that maybe I was some part of that too. Uh, It's really encouraging uh, and it also makes me feel really inspired that people can really make changes for themselves. Oh, thank you, Lucy. But let, let's start with, do, do you have any particular quote which resonates with you, Lucy? You know, I've got so many quotes I'm known for when, in the old days when we used to run workshops in, in big rooms, in hotels, etc. When we used to meet in per- person, I was well known for writing up quotes, inspirational quotes from all sorts of people on flip charts and having them round the room. That was always my thing. Uh, my delegates and uh, fellow coaches and trainers used to comment on it. 
Um, but there's one particularly this week that has touched me because I'm, I'm really thinking a lot about compassion and self-compassion. And this quote is uh, from Helen Keller. And the quote is, uh, when one door of happiness closes, another opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we don't see the one that's actually opened for us. Oh, that, that's, I love that quote. <laughs> no, that, that, that's amazing. I think that really resonates with me because it's that whole idea of, I think, looking in the past, ruminating about what has happened and, and you can't get back. And I think I, I think that's a really interesting thing about time is that unfortunately it's only going in one direction and looking back is a bit pointless. But yeah, so anyway, that's a great quote, Lisa. I, I could talk for hours about that, but I think you know, let, let's move on to you know, talking about maybe your your career journey and, and why you decided to become a positive psychologist and a coach. Yeah, goodness, I, I've definitely not had a, a straight trajectory in my career. Um, so I was in sales and business development for the first 17 or 18 years. I was a salesperson and I was all about developing business and making money for large organizations, organizations that actually were connected funnily enough, with well-being. So I was in working for um, organizations in the pharmaceutical industry and also organizations in the employee benefits industry, including uh, medical healthcare. So I worked for a time with Bupa and Cigna. And I was essentially selling healthcare benefits for a long time. And then I guess, like a lot of people um, in sales, there comes a point where you decide, do I want to carry on doing this? What is it I love about my job? And what I really have always been fascinated in is people, which is probably why I ended up in sales, because I, I'm curious, I'm nosy, I'm interested in people. And that really led me into both psychology and human resources and how you can really help people to thrive. And so through various roles that I had, I ended up taking a master's in positive psychology and coaching psychology. And I've been a coach actually formally and informally. So working for myself and within organizations for about 12 or 13 years now. So what I really love is helping people to move from a place of survival to a place where they're actually really thriving. They're doing more than just hanging on and functioning, they're thriving, they're flourishing, and they're making the best of their lives. And that's what really makes my heart sing now. Oh, that that's an amazing sort of reason. Essentially, you found out the why of behind your, your sort of career journey. And I think that's really mm. important for a lot of people. What is the why? What is the thing that motivates them? Uh, and by the way, Lucy's website is Transform and Thrive co.uk so um yeah i think that's where the whole thriving is that where it comes from lucy yeah uh, absolutely yes uh, it actually came to me i was uh, like most business owners i was unsure what do i call my business and i was driving one day on one of my many many long journeys um to see clients and i thought well everything i do is about transformation for people that's what clients tell me and everything that I'm interested in with regards to positive psychology is all about thriving. So transform and thrive seemed like a, a natural way to go. 
So in, in terms of that that first course that we uh, where where we met, I think there are mm-hmm. a few concepts and ideas which really resonated with me, and I thought it would be nice to have a have a chat about those and pass that information on to our listeners. So I think the first thing was talking about mindset and you know fixed versus growth mindset and the work that Carol Dweck had done. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about that, Lucy? Yeah, I think I've always found this really fascinating. And this work by Carol Dweck was essentially uh, postulating that it's the way that we approach challenge and difficulty in life that really leads to the outcome. So are we going to approach it with a mindset that is what she calls fixed, this idea of really not seeing the opportunity? Also, this concept of seeing failure as the end. So when Carol Dweck first studied this whole area, she noticed that children who were failing at particular maths tests, some of them found that really devastating and it stopped them from doing anything else. It shut them down. It put barriers in their way because they just believed they weren't good enough and that there wasn't a possibility of learning anything or succeeding. But yet there were other children who remained interested and a bit curious and a bit playful. And those children were the ones that were not necessarily successful at the maths problems, but seemed to be more successful generally in their schooling and in their lives. They had better results school-wise all round. And so she went on to study this whole idea of the way that we look at things, the way that we view failure and the way that we view challenge. And it became clear to her and subsequent researchers that if we're open-minded, if we're willing to take a chance, if we're willing to look at failure not as the end, but potentially as the beginning of something, then we can hone our skills. Also to really watch our pride. You know, sometimes when we fail, our pride is, is hurt. And understandably, well, people with a growth mindset, they will also feel disappointed, hurt and sad when they fail. But what they do differently is to pick themselves up and say, yes, this hurts. This feels really uncomfortable. I don't want to fail. But they then start asking themselves, I wonder what I can do differently next time. Who can I talk to? What resources can I draw on? What can I learn? And who can I learn it from? So it's not that growth mindset people are different human beings. They still feel hurt and disappointment in the same way as anybody else but they seem to have this ability to look for the potential, look for the opportunities. And I think I've seen that so much in so many examples of people, ordinary people, we're not talking about extraordinary people over the years. And it really does make a difference to how we view our life and the experience we have of life. I, th- I think that's really interesting, Lucy. From, from my perspective, I think that you you can actually, if you have a fixed mindset, you can try and move over to a growth mindset, which I think is an mm. interesting concept to, to some extent, or at least if you recognize, so this is not something that you're born with. And I think probably for our listeners, that's quite a, a nice thing, isn't it? That you're not just born, you've got this fixed mindset and that's it, but you have the ability mm. to, to move across. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we're not talking about personality traits. We're not talking about something that is absolutely fixed in our DNA and over which we have no control whatsoever. Uh, and in fact, having a fixed mindset in certain areas of our lives might not matter at all. It might not be an issue. So this isn't about being growth mindset in everything that we do. This is about choosing what areas in life could I be a bit more curious and interested a bit less afraid of failure, a bit more willing to stretch myself. That's what growth mindset is. And so, yeah, we can absolutely shift. And we know that we can do this because we have the power to, to change, materially change the structure of our brain, depending on where we pay our attention. I know that's so interesting. And also the point you made about sort of self-worth and self-esteem. Uh, some people, if they fail, they think oh, we're, we're complete failures. But it's that whole idea of failing, but then thinking, OK, what, what can I learn from this? So I think if you can sort of cut off the results and how you feel about yourself and just try and look at those two dispassionately, I think that's quite important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also having compassion for the fact that, uh, you know, failure is part of life. And inevitably, things will go wrong, we'll have setbacks. And what that gives us is an opportunity to learn. And there is nobody that's successful in life that hasn't fallen down some bumps in the road or a few holes in the road, a few potholes along the way, and had to climb a few mountains. That's the reality, is that we will face failure, difficulty, setbacks and adversity. And it's the way that our brain actually approaches those. And we know now through neuroplasticity, we can change. We can change our attitude. We can change the way we pay attention to those experiences that, that are difficult, that are tricky in life. No, Definitely. totally. And, and I think that's a nice segue into neuroplasticity, um, which you know, mm. I'm fascinated by the whole idea that our brains constantly can change and, and it can develop. Yeah, I find um, neuroplasticity absolutely fascinating as well. Uh, I came across it probably eight or nine years ago, and it, it is a relatively new discovery. I was quite shocked to discover that um, there are some physicians, so some medical, qualified medical people in the world who really don't know about neuroplasticity either. So neuroplasticity is the ability that the brain has to change itself and to do so at a cellular level. And we know that neuroplasticity means that we're paying attention in a different way. So essentially, what we pay attention to repeatedly, so this is about repeated and directed attention towards a particular goal or activity. And that is what we mean by neuroplasticity, because what happens with that repeated and directed attention is that the brain actually changes shape. So we have more neuronal connections, which are the little firings and wirings within the brain. And that actually is seen under microscope, under functional magnetic resonance imaging. That is seen as a thickness in the brain. And what does that mean? Just because the brain gets thicker, so what? What actually happens to our experience? Well, our experience is that our behavior, our attitude, our mindset, our beliefs, they shift too. Anytime that you have decided to let go of one habit that no longer serves you and start a new habit that you find more useful, neuroplasticity has been at work. That's what's got you there. 
And it's happening all the time, no matter what age we are. There seems to be evidence that neuroplasticity for most people, most of the way through their life, if they choose to turn their attention to something new and different, their brain changes. And I think it's really interesting that there are, there's that study into sort of London taxi drivers, is there, Lucy, where they showed that thickening? Um, yeah, that's a great study. So that was a study that was published uh, 10 years ago now, actually. So, you know, neuroplasticity has been knocking around for a little while. What was interesting about that study was um, it's what's called a longitudinal study. So it went over for four years and they had it was very rigorous and it's recognized now as one of the uh, seminal studies in the area of neuroplasticity. So we know that black cab drivers in London, they have to learn something called the knowledge. And it's one of the most difficult learning periods and exams for anybody to go through. They're essentially learning the geography of London and how to drive through London. And you can only learn it one way, which is over and over again. So that's the repeated directed attention on geographical and spatial awareness. So the researchers looked at a group of individuals who went all the way through the four years. It takes about four years to qualify and get your license. They also had a control group that were doing nothing to do with this. And then they had a third group that got halfway through, but gave up because most people, frankly, they do give up. It's a very, very hard learning experience. And they were able to compare through fMRI, these functional magnetic resonance imagings, they were able to compare the brains. And what they noticed was that the people who went all the way through four years of intense, repeated, directed attention, their brains had physically changed. So the thickness in the areas associated with memory and with geography and landscape and navigation, all those areas in the brain showed thicknesses that were increased from when they started. And notably, that were different from the other two control groups. So it was a groundbreaking piece of research. And it really showed us that if we can repeatedly direct our attention on something, that's when we get real discernible change. Really exciting. And I think just following on from that, that whole idea of habit creation, I think essentially they were doing this task again and again, and they almost got into this habit uh, situation. And I suppose it just shows that any task which you do again and again, then you're almost doing it without thinking. Um, and I mm -hmm. suppose when you get to a certain level of expertise, you know, people talk about, they, they just do it instinctually, but actually it's the brain remembering all the times they've done that task and they have these patterns in mm -hmm. their mind. So I suppose anytime you le achieve a, uh, you've worked for a number of years on, on something, you you get this skill. So I think it, that's quite interesting, the whole idea of habit creation. Um, and I think there's mm. a, a good book by Charles Duhigg. Have you come across mm. that, Lucy, which I think is fantastic? Yes, yeah, very experienced writer on the whole subject of habits. And it it's actually a very fascinating psychological subject because it's quite contentious. There's um, There's no definitive, there's lots of theories, uh, and and that that particular book that Charles wrote is very it's very fa fascinating because there's no definitive answer on how we actually create and maintain habits. Yeah. 
but there's lots of very compelling research. And we do know that this idea of repeated directed attention encodes the brain. What's happening is it's encoding within the brain and things become essentially unconscious competence. So it's the things that you're used to, like every day, you don't have to stop and think about brushing your teeth, boiling the kettle, doing all those regular walking. You don't have to think about those things anymore. But somebody who has had a stroke and has had damage to their brain, they will have to relearn those things. And we know that they do relearn them and they relearn them through neuroplasticity. Often different areas of their brain are utilized for that new activity that previously has been destroyed in their brain. So we still, there's so much we don't know about the brain and habits is just the tip of the iceberg. It's absolutely fascinating, Lucy, definitely. And I suppose um, one other thing I I really found interesting was that whole idea of reframing, looking at a situation and and rather than seeing it as a disaster, you think this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so important, especially nowadays. Yeah, reframing is a is a really um, solid practice, actually, that's been around in psychology and particularly clinical psychology with cognitive behavioral therapy for many decades now. Um, And we know that there is continually very compelling research to support it. And essentially what we're doing is this is a little bit different than simply thinking positively. What we're actually doing is we are catching We're catching the thoughts. So we need to be very cognizant of what's actually going on in the landscape of my brain right now. What am I thinking about? And once we can actually start to follow and observe our thoughts, we start to notice, are they helpful, unhelpful? Perhaps they're just neutral thoughts. What type of thoughts are going through my mind at the moment? Particularly if I'm faced with challenge or difficulty, can we catch that thought that might be saying, you're going to fail, this is too difficult, don't try this, all of those sort of negative, unhelpful thoughts. And reframing then is that once we've caught it, we can then check it, you know, actually, is this useful? Is this true? We can start interrogating that thought. I wonder why that thought is there. Perhaps it's a regular pattern. Perhaps that voice is a is a familiar old friend or old enemy yeah, exactly, that keeps yeah. coming back. And we can actually take a bit of lightness. You know, part of self-compassion, for example, is being a little bit light about it. Oh, there you are, old friend again, telling me I can't do something. So we've caught it and we've checked it. The next step really for us is to change it is our choice to change it. But we might well look at that thought and we might think, you know, that's pretty unhelpful. There's not much evidence to support that particular thought. Perhaps there's some other way I could look at this. Is there another perspective, another way of looking at this? Could this difficulty perhaps be an opportunity? It might be very well disguised. It might feel very uncomfortable, but could it actually be something that could be positive or at least interesting for me? Maybe it's a learning opportunity, even if it feels really uncomfortable, perhaps, and actually more so if it feels uncomfortable because we're having to try hard. So that's when we can look at changing it. And and I think that you made an interesting point there about uh, almost facts and thoughts because they're you know, two, mm. two separate things. And sometimes we look at our thoughts and we think, oh yeah, that, that, that is the factual basis. But I think if you can actually look at those two things separately, I think that's quite a, a powerful thing, thing to do. Is this really what is going on or is it 
how I'm interpreting the situation. Mm, absolutely. And I think that uh, that's quite a, it's one of the things that I often say to my coaching clients and to my delegates in workshops is, you know, have you considered the possibility that thoughts may not be facts? And how do you feel about that? And it always makes me chuckle because for everyone in the room will be quite affronted or quite often be quite affronted or offended that the thoughts in their head might not be facts. Well, goodness, if they're not facts, then what are? But the truth is we live most of our lives within our heads and that's our own reality. But it's not always true. You know, if we can take that moment to be what I would call mindful, which is just present moment awareness, if we can take that moment to just check in, is that really true? Can I be absolutely sure that that is the truth? What evidence have I got for that? Once we start taking a rather dispassionate observer view of this, how might somebody else see this? If someone else was in my head now watching that thought, what might they say? What might somebody who I consider to be wise or who loves me and cares for me, how might they see this situation? What might they say about that thought? So it's almost like we're a detective and we're standing back very dispassionately from the crime scene and deciding, hmm, what's actually going on here? And we may discover, and my contention is that perhaps more often than not, we will discover that the thoughts isn't actually a fact. It is just a thought. You know, it's really interesting. Say you, you turn up for work and, you know, your boss is in a good mood. That may not necessarily be with you. It could be that he or she has had you know, problems at home. Or say if you're going for a, a job interview, um, you could have got down to the last level, um, the final interview, but you don't get it. You know, rather than saying, oh, dear, I'm a failure. You can say, well, I've actually got through the CV part. I've got through two, three, four rounds of interviews. But all I need is a little bit more of a push and I'll get the job next time. We're not saying be delusional and, and completely optimistic in ridiculous situations. But I think it's just really trying to look at what is actually going on, um, almost having a, a coach on, on your shoulder, um, like, like you, Lucy, saying, yeah, let's just sit down, <laughs> look at the reality of the situation and not get swayed by our emotions. Um, Mm. And that's the, that's always the challenge, of course, is that emotions are how, well, certainly from, from my, my belief and my research is that emotions lead us most of the time. You know, we are very, no matter whether we like it or not, human beings are emotional creatures. And so being rational can be quite tricky. So what we need to be able to do in order to get into that rational space is simply to recognize maybe now isn't the right time for me to be making a decision about whether or not I'm a failure at an interview. Can I just give myself some time to recognize I'm disappointed, you know, that I didn't get the job. I really wanted the job. I tried hard for the job. I performed well in the interview. Can I allow myself a moment of disappointment, of sadness? Because anybody in my situation would be disappointed and sad if they wanted the job. Yeah, totally. And then once we've allowed ourselves, yeah, you have to allow yourself to feel these feelings. And we're not superhuman, we're, we're human beings. So of course we're going to be disappointed. But can we then, once we've allowed ourselves to process those emotions, to acknowledge we're disappointed, we might be frustrated, can we then look at the situation 
once we've set the emotions to one side and think, okay, it's disappointing. This is where I am. What have I learned from this situation? What might I do differently? How can I check in with those thoughts of, of failure, of devastation, and really reframe them in a way which is helpful? Because I want to get the next interview and I don't want this one to hold me back from the next one. So it might be that I go ahead and I find out some feedback. And if there's areas I agree on and I want to do some work on, well, that's something I can actively do. But being able to allow ourselves to have those emotions, we're human. Of course, we're disappointed. And then once they're processed, then it's about saying, okay, what next? Now I can think rationally. Now I can move forward. Yeah, I think it's always having a chance to uh, grieve um, because this is a, it's, it's a real loss, whether it's a job or things not going well at work or personal relationships. Give yourself a chance, uh, give yourself a chance to grieve, be kind to yourself and then you know, try and move on. And, and I suppose moving on from that, uh, you mentioned previously that you're a positive psychologist. How, how would you try and incorporate that into one's life? Yeah, totally possible. The reason I studied positive psychology is because it's an applied science. So mm-hmm. I'm very interested in concepts and I'm very interested in theory and uh, I can get uh, I can get very geeky about the research. But what I'm really interested in it, for me, for my life and for the lives of the people that I serve is actually what they can do every day. So I was seeking something to study that would enable people to apply it that it's real. And so applied positive psychology is what I studied as a ma- at master's level. And really what that means is everyday things that we can do. Because in positive psychology, what we're looking to do is to help most of us, most of the time, are managing fine. You know, we're doing okay, but we might like to do better. There are some people, of course, that are suffering and struggling with mental ill health, absolutely. And there are some people at the other end of the spectrum who are absolutely flourishing and thriving. But for approximately 80% of us, give or take a few, most of the time, we're doing okay. And positive psychology seeks to tweak that. It seeks to move us from a place of doing okay to thriving and flourishing. And we do that through very practical things like gratitude. Uh, being, we know, we know that being grateful and expressing gratitude, so not simply noticing it, but actually expressing it. We know that people who actually express and notice when things are going well are actually able to have higher levels of well-being. It reduces anxiety and incidences of depression. We also know that things like savoring, so really slowing down an experience that is positive to us enables us to get more pleasure, so to generate more positive emotions from it. We also look at strengths. So what are we actually innately good at? What are our character strengths, not our learned skills? But character strengths include things like kindness and teamwork and leadership and analysis and these sorts of areas. And do we know what they are and how we can enhance them? We also look at things like optimism and particularly realistic optimism. So having a plan, having goals that we work towards, but goals that are meaningful to us. So we talk a lot in positive psychology about your values, your meaning and your purpose in life. Because once we can start clarifying that, we then decisions about what we do and more importantly, what we don't do in life are actually much more straightforward when we've got a clear idea of what really brings us true meaning in our lives. So positive psychology 
includes things like mindfulness as well. So being mindful in the moments. Now, these are all things that are actually very straightforward practices. They don't require lots and lots of money. They don't require any complex equipment. They are simply ways of just tweaking our day-to-day existence so that we actually start to generate, you know, better psychological well-being and emotional well-being as a result. And there's 20, 25 years of pretty compelling research that supports positive psychology. It's definitely not positive thinking. Um, It's much more sustainable than that. It's about having a complete holistic view of our life, allowing ourselves to feel all all of our emotions. Uh, So it's not all about positive thinking and and being happy all the time. It's, It's actually embracing the real life that we all live in all of its glory and technicolor, even though sometimes it's tricky and challenging and sticky totally. and difficult, yeah, totally. as well as joyous. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I suppose the interesting thing, two, two things I got out of that are the gratitude piece. I think that's so important, well, especially during you know, the last eight, nine months, um, even mm-hmm. though these are very challenging times, there are still things that you know, we have that a lot of people don't. You know, we have a roof over our heads, we can still feed ourselves. Um, you know, you mm-hmm. can walk about that. There, if you actually do look at your life, there are still a number of things to be thankful for. Um, so I think that that's you know one thing which I think is is so important. And I, if I feel that I'm sort of getting into a bad space, I, I try to check myself and say, look, there are all these great things which you have in your life. Mm-hmm. Be be appreciative mm-hmm. of it thinking about your values and trying to align a future job with that. I think that's really important because I think if you feel that you're happy in, in a job and it's it's aligned with your values, then you could just put so much more work into it, can't you, Lucy? Mm, absolutely. Values, I think, um, are probably one of the key things that I come back to with many of my clients because there's an awful lot of surface things that we could be doing. But unless we really connect with why we're here and what really matters to us, then it becomes quite difficult to navigate through challenging times. And I think this year, more than any year, I've noticed that my clients have started recalibrating their values. They've perhaps been, many of us have been, distracted by living very busy, demanding lives that involve commuting and pressure and rushing all the time. And many of us have been forced into a slower pace, which has been uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's been quite comfortable for others. So we're all very different in how we respond to that. But I've noticed my clients saying to me that they've rediscovered their value of nature, so getting outside and connecting with nature, people who never would have dreamed they would have said that they value nature. I had a client who told me that they, that him and his partner decided that they were going to move property. This is somebody very early on in their property ladder. They were going to move simply because they realized how valuable nature is to them and to their two-year-old daughter. And they wanted to bring her up in a space where there was more green, And neither of them had ever been interested. They lived in a busy city. They were very near their workplaces. It was all very convenient. And they realized something they never knew in the first lockdown was that actually they value nature and they they value their daughter being brought up around parks and greenery. 
So they haven't shifted very many miles, maybe 20 miles, but now they're living in a place that connects with their values and they can still do their jobs because, of course, most people are going to be working remotely at least some of the time for the foreseeable future and maybe for much longer. And I think the other interesting point that I picked up there, Lucy, was I think when you're trying to um, change or move into a, a different space, um, it's really about putting the effort in. I, I think change, is, it, it's not easy. And I suppose also big change certainly is not easy, but change is possible, but you have to almost take baby steps and and be kind to yourself. So look, it, it may not work. Maybe we want to start going to the gym more or changing certain habits. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to happen overnight. But if you do as much as you can to try and help that change, maybe get your gym kit prepared and ready to go, book a time, Mm -hmm. have a a buddy you go with, just make it as easy as possible to stick to those habits and, and that change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this this really connects again to values, because if your value is staying healthy, so for example, I've worked with people whose value is to stay healthy for their children. So that's what drives them. You know, I want to be healthy and I've decided that this is the way I'm going to do it. It might be going for a run or joining a gym or whatever it might be. But they connect every day with the value, the reason that they're doing it, because there's going to be many, many days where they don't feel like doing it. But they keep coming back to the value. If the value is is not strong enough, if their health uh, is not a big enough value for them, then invariably they're going to struggle to stick to it. So we that's where values come in really useful is what is the value that this habit I want to do? What value is it connecting with? And you'll find that it will connect with something. If you want to make a change, it's because of something you value in your life or the lives of your family, people that you love. So connecting those habits is really important. And then it is about baby steps. And I I always encourage all clients to just start small, you know, do something really, really small. You know, clients come to me and they say, I want to learn how to be mindful. How can, how can I learn mindfulness quickly? <laughs> What's the quickest way I can learn mindfulness? And unfortunately, despite what many gurus might say, none of these self-development journeys are going to happen overnight. And it's only through connecting with our values and then taking small baby steps and noticing what we're achieving along the way. So this is where looking in the rear view mirror does help us. If we reflect on actually, I've come farther than I thought. I'm asking my clients, every client I speak to at the moment, what's your reflections on this year? What have you found easier now than you did six months ago? Every client will have amazing reflections, even the ones who have been through terrible personal adversity this year will be able to celebrate something that they've changed or learned about themselves this year. And that's really what habits are all about. It's about connecting with the values, taking baby steps, and then looking back and saying, actually, I did pretty well. And I learned something through that experience. And for that, I'm grateful. No, 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 totally. Um, now, Lucy, I think you might be uh, helpful for some of our listeners, you know, given the situation going on at the moment, everybody's very, very, facing pretty precarious employment situations. And I thought it would be interesting to chat about a few scenarios and maybe you could give some tips or strategies to, to help them out. Would that be okay? Sure. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. So I, I suppose the first thing is, say you're currently not working or you're out of a job, 
what would you say in terms of core strategies which would help to help you get back into employment? Yeah, I think this is a challenge that many folk are facing all the time, but but more increasingly, of course, now and into 2021. I, I remember once being uh, advised many years ago when I was also going through periods of redundancy and looking for jobs. I was I was advised by a very wise person that looking for a job is a full time job in itself. And I remember being quite flippant and thinking, well, what does that mean? And for me, I found that I instinctively started doing a number of things that I then subsequently, when I did my studies of positive psychology, I actually found that I was doing things that actually positive psychologists would recommend, which is is really getting structured about things. So it it did become a full-time job. So I structured out my week the calls I was going to make, the interviews, the research I was going to do, the networking I was going to get involved in. And I treated it like a job in that I got up regularly at the same time. I went to bed regularly at the same time. I nourished my energy. So making sure that I also took plenty of breaks and had good sleep, prioritized my mental health, my physical health, my spiritual and emotional health. And I was doing all of those things without really realizing that that was a thing. And again, it was small, steady steps. It was making sure that I stayed connected as well to that network and that I learned from every interview, every CV experience, every coffee I had with people, that I learned I took something from that. And when things didn't go well, that I allowed myself some time to just process that and then move forward. And it it did actually become almost a full-time job. It was surprising how much if you can actually schedule your time and be quite practiced about it. The other thing I did was to make sure I was reaching out to other people who were also in a similar situation so that we could share tips and understanding about what's the best way, you know, I'm facing this challenge. What's the way that you challenge, you dealt with that challenge? What did you learn? So staying connected because being out of work can feel very isolating. So staying connected is really important. And, and as I say, subsequently, I discovered that all of these strategies are actually what most of the positive psychologists and, and most people in this, this area would recommend us do. Plan, schedule, lots and lots of breaks, lots of self-care, reach out to networks, stay connected with people and treat every experience of an interview or a discussion as practice. If we can hold it lightly and look at every experience as practice rather than a a failure or a success, then that's where the growth mindset can come in handy as well. Yeah, it's not a referendum on how good good you are as a human being. It's just an interview. And there's a huge amount of luck in, in all these things, isn't there? So, but, but I do like that point about structure. I think just getting up every day, imagine you're going to work and just showing up, um, maybe even going into another room or going for a walk mm-hmm. and coming back into the house, having a change of clothing. I think all these things do help to just shift that mindset from I'm at home, I'm unemployed to I've actually got the job of getting a job. And, mm. and also, I think documenting everything maybe down into a spreadsheet to, to show the calls that you've made or the interviews that you've been on. And I, I, I suppose also in terms of networking, which I'm going to move on to now, that if you do meet with people, 
uh, you know, what has happened? Have you followed up? Because um, I think sometimes you just think people will come to you, but people are so busy nowadays, aren't they? They, they, mm. even the nicest friends that you have, unless you make an effort, sometimes it's just difficult to find time to connect. Absolutely. I love your spreadsheet, by the way. I was, uh, I was definitely there with a spreadsheet um, back when I, I've had two redundancies in my career. And I think one thing that being in sales and business development, so having to follow up on leads, that taught me is have a good contact management system. And for me, it was a spreadsheet. And I used that for every single thing that I did, every call that I made, every follow up that I needed to make. I found that sort of hugely grounding because I was able to see my progress and I was able to tick things off and move on to the next one. And I think, you know, although that was many, many years ago, I think anything that allows us to quantify what we're achieving and to be clear about the steps we're taking is fantastic and it absolutely helps our brain to feel that there is some certainty when it can feel so uncertain when we don't have a job yeah even for my podcast lucy I, i've got all my guests mapped out you know have i contacted them have they come back to me so afterwards i can put a big tick against your name <laughs> <laughs> we love ticking things <laughs> off lists harsha <laughs> and, and also it gives you a chance to think about who might appear on my podcast you know really you're know, thinking outside the box so uh, mm. I, I've, I've been emailing people on LinkedIn, <laughs> so quite, quite high-powered people. I, I doubt they'll get back to me, but still I feel good about having you know, certain people on my list. But hey, but moving on to uh, networking. And now obviously that's, that's difficult now given the fact that we can't actually mm. physically meet. But what would you suggest mm. are good strategies to do that in the virtual world? Well, thankfully, for most networking meetings, regular networking meetings, um, they seem to have got with the program and everything seems to be virtual now, which is amazing. So I think anything that you can join that is relevant to your industry or special area of interest, um, there is just an abundance of opportunities to network. And also things like uh, webinars and workshops that are actually in your sphere of influence and interest where you can meet people, where it might not be called a networking event, but just like any other workshop that you would attend in real face-to-face -face life, you're always going to network when you're at a workshop or a conference. Yeah, yeah. So why not do that online? So it's another opportunity. Where I've also seen it work successfully this year is, um, I, and I tried this myself um, for the first six months of, of this pandemic, was setting up virtual cuppers, so a virtual coffee. So literally going onto LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever your chosen social media channel is, and you're just sort of saying, you know, I, I'm up for coffee tomorrow afternoon between this hour and this hour, you know, who wants to join me? And what I, I was really happy to find for myself was, you know, my expectation was I had realistic optimism, so I was hopeful, but I wasn't convinced. And actually, I ended up having to, to slow down my virtual cuppers because they were taking up so much time <laughs> and I had to measure them out a little bit more practically. Too much caffeine. So I, 
Too much caffeine was definitely true, most definitely true. But where people have been telling me that this really works is, you know, keep them short and sharp. You know, this doesn't, we don't have to commit to an hour of time with someone. It can be a 20 minute cup of coffee on a Monday morning or joining someone at the end of the week, you know, who'd like to reflect with me this week on on how their week has gone. Let's let's book a time for three o'clock on Friday afternoon. And just to sort of try and replace those you know, water cooler moments that we used to have where we bumped into people in networking events or in the office or wherever we used to hang out, maybe in the gym, just getting those opportunities to connect. But it it, it works and it does require organization and it does require stepping out, out of our comfort zone because the easier thing to do would be not to reach out. But for me, that's just the same as regular networking. The easier thing would be to stay at home and, and not go out and look for a job and network with people. Yeah, but, totally. you know, we do. We, we, we put our suit on and we, we get into the car or onto the train and we do it. Now we can reach out and, and actually do that virtually and potentially actually have more meetings than we ever would do in person. You know, we don't need to commute anywhere. You know, how many virtual couples can you get into the day? Yeah. One other thing I, I found interesting is that if you can produce content, share a, uh, an article or you you write something down, I think that's so powerful. Just the fact that every week, if you're posting two or three things, I mean, not, not silly things, but if they do add value to people, it's about creating uh, an impression in people's minds about about your values and also creating mm. your your brand isn't it I, and also that's something you have control about you you can write an article you can write a post you can create a podcast you can do a video and these are all things within our we have that locus of control um whereas with all this craziness going on it's very difficult sometimes to figure out what we can control um and i think that's mm. something that i've definitely learned through this period just really get back to things that I can control and it does uh, produce uh, genuine results I think. Absolutely and I think um, when it comes to posting things I I absolutely love doing that too and I, and I think what I love to do is engage with people when I'm posting things so I like to ask them a question and I like to engage in hearing their thinking about it and you know more often than not i'm hoping that they'll they'll disagree or they'll have an alternative perspective or they'll say oh yes that reminds me of x y and z because that will broaden my thinking too so um i think with posts what's interesting is is if we can be a little bit contentious if we can ask questions if we can invite alternative perspectives it avoids the echo chamber that can sometimes happen in social media where we're really only hearing the same views as ourselves. So I think inviting people to really get involved and being really open to that as well, um, I think that's hugely valuable. And if you can share any of your own knowledge too and get that back from people, I think this is all growth mindset. You know, this is all about reaching out, connecting and finding out, you know, what do you think about this particular issue or theory? And I totally, I totally agree there, mm-hmm. Lucy. Um, but one other scenario, which I think is quite interesting is say um, you're at work, you know, you've, you, you're in a job, you've got a job, which, which is great, but for whatever reason, either you're not getting on with your boss or your colleagues, are there any sort of strategies that you would suggest to deal with that situation to try and get to a better place? 
Difficulties, challenges with with other people are a part of life. You know, they're a part of family life, friendships, and inevitably the workplace. We spend many, many hours of our lives in the workplace, and the chance of us all getting on and uh, finding that there's no disagreements is is very unlikely. And in fact, there's quite a lot of research to support that in organisations where there is healthy debate and disagreements and differences of opinion, where it's handled well and in a psychologically safe environment, those organisations get great innovation and growth. Where we're an individual and we find problems with communicating with our boss or, or with colleagues, my first suggestion always is to listen and that doesn't always feel natural because quite often if there's conflict we want to defend ourselves which means we're talking uh, or we're we're not doing we're ignoring so we generally fall into that sort of we we extricate ourselves from the situation we don't want to engage or we get quite combative with someone and we're quite resistant to them But actually what we know from research around communication and particularly around listening is most of us just don't listen very well at all. Most human beings don't. And that's just a it's not because we're bad. It's not because we're poorly intended and we want to we're malicious or we want to hurt anyone. We just don't listen very well. We're not taught to listen very well. And I think one of our key strengths, it's almost like our ammunition, is our ability to actually just step back and listen to other people's perspective. And it might be, possibly, that we are contributing to this challenge. So, you know, inevitably, when we are coming up against, butting up against challenge or problems with other people, we have a contribution in that as well. So, you know, what might we learn? What might we do differently in that situation? I think the other thing as well is to be quite honest about it. And not all workplaces facilitate that. So if you do have a safe environment where you can ask those questions, and obviously that might be different for for different people, but I think calling it out. So, you know, being able to say to someone, you know, I noticed that things have been a bit tricky between us lately. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. And when we ask an open question like that, we're inviting their thoughts. We're saying that we've noticed that something isn't quite right. We're not laying blame. We're saying things are difficult between us or tricky between us or whatever language feels right. But we're not saying it's you or it's me. We're just saying, I notice. And I'd really like us to get to a better place What are your thoughts on that? And then if we can just be quiet and listen to what their thoughts are on that and hold back from the desire, which we will inevitably have to argue or to be defensive and to simply just listen and to then thank the person for that as well, for sharing that with us, because they will inevitably have noticed that things are difficult too, or tricky or uncomfortable or downright horrible. They'll have noticed it. They're a human being and they'll be trying to work out what should they do about it? Should they ignore it? Should they create an argument with you or do something official? They'll be worried about it too in some way or another. So simply by raising it, it gives us an opportunity to look at the elephant in the room and decide, What are we going to do about this? And more importantly, how do we want it to be? You know, how would we like it to be between us? And if you can also state that, you know, I'd love to be able to work with you 
where we both felt things were a bit easier, where we could communicate more easily between us, where we were able to share ideas and do that in a way that was right for both of us. What do you think we need to do to get to that? Or how does that sound to you? Those sorts of very open statements and then questions of how and what do you think they just enable somebody else to know, oh, there's the signal that somebody's interested. This person is interested in my opinion. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to come to a resolution, but it does guarantee that you'll both have an opportunity to be heard. And for many people, we just don't get the opportunity to be really, really heard. So that's a great first step. And I think that's interesting. It's just the whole idea of being self-aware about the situation and trying to communicate with with that person. And I suppose we're both saying this may not work, but at least you've made a first step. And okay, if it doesn't work, then you need to sort of consider your other, other options. But I think at least it's worthwhile getting that conversation started. Um, and you, and you mm-hmm. have a better idea to get a feel for what, what's going on um, rather than being completely blindsided. Mm, absolutely. And I think place is important as well. So when we are back in offices, um, I would always say to people, as much as you can, try and have those discussions in more of a relaxed, neutral place preferably when you're going for a walk you know could you invite that person for a walk I mean we can probably still do that in most areas not all areas at the moment in the country in the UK but in areas where the restrictions aren't quite so harsh we might be able to go for a walk with that person and we know that people when they're walking are actually much more able to communicate about difficult things because they're not actually looking at each other eye to eye so it takes away some of that pressure and on a cycle psychological level that removes the threats so some of our best discussions that we might find in life with colleagues friends anybody that we're having difficulty with that will often be on a walk uh, or indeed a drive you know in the old days where we could sit in a car with someone nowadays I think if we are working virtually with people trying to take things sort of offline maybe on the phone you know we do so much on video right now is is it possible to have you know one of those tricky conversations on the phone you know we don't have to always be under the pressure of a video camera watching our every move so there are ways to do it but the first thing we really need to do is find the courage which means being vulnerable to really open up and say I noticed recently that you know things don't seem to be great between us and I'd really love it to to be in a better place but I'm wondering what you think about this. You know, tell me what you think. And then just allowing that conversation. Again, going back to your point of baby steps, Harsha, this is about baby steps. You know, some conflict we're not going to resolve in one discussion um, if we ever do resolve it. But the point here is, can we listen to the other person's perspective and point of view? That's growth mindset. If we can allow ourselves to, to maybe hold off our own judgments and just listen to what they have to say, we may well find that we learned something we didn't expect. That's great advice, Lucy. And then um, one final thing, obviously a lot of us are working from home. Do you have any specific tips to help that, that sort of situation? Yeah, I think a lot of people have sort of settled into their their ways of working now. Um, but I, I actually go back a lot to that structure 
that we talked about when we're out of work. And one of the things that we, we did at the beginning when we didn't quite know how long this was all going to last and what was going to happen, it was all going to be over in a few weeks' time. And at the beginning, it was a bit, for, for many people, when they were furloughed, for example, it was a bit of happy holidays for some people. It was, you know, I can go to bed when I like, I can get up when I like, I can eat what I like, I can work in my pyjamas all day if I'm working. Um, and I think quite quickly we realised that, that's just not going to work. As human beings, we need to have a rhythm and we, we really need to speak to our circadian rhythm, which is our homeostasis, our way of saying stable. So that does mean that when we're working from home, we need to be probably quite deliberate about having a structure. And that means getting up and going to bed at the same time that we would do if we were commuting. And if we were having our old life back again, we had a regular way of, of approaching our day and trying our best to make sure that we bookend our day so that we can transition from home and work. Because for most of us working at home, everything's happening in one place. You know, we are literally working, parenting, sometimes schooling, <laughs> uh, as well as as well as well trying to have some sort of social life, maybe Zoom or whatever that might look like for us. We're trying to do everything in one space. So we need to be quite, quite deliberate, I think, about how we structure those transitions. How are you going to tell your brain that now is the end of the day? Now is time for me to transition into my evening routine, whatever that might look like. So we need to have switching rituals. You know, we used to have a switching ritual of walking to the tube station, getting on a train, going home. That used to tell our brain, oh, okay, now's the time for me to move into the evening. And that would be something that we just got used to habitually. So what can we replace that with now? And for some people, it might look like having a walk at the end of the day or joining a yoga group or a book club or making sure that we commit to having an evening meal with the family at a particular time. And that means I've got to stop. So I've got to prepare that meal. So having something that really has a stop start in our day, also making sure we have a lot of breaks. And this is something I, I cannot actually say enough to people is I'm working with so many folk who are literally sitting at their computer and never moving apart from lavatory breaks for 10 hours a day. And that is not healthy for us. And neither is it healthy long term. But in terms of our energy levels, that's going to sap our energy very quickly. We know that really what we ought to be doing is, is every hour is trying to have a five minute mini break. And that could be just stepping away from the screen, maybe doing some stretches, perhaps doing something completely different that doesn't involve screens. Yeah. So getting outside, maybe at lunchtime, we don't have to have a full hour lunch break if that's not our thing. But can we take 30 minutes to just do something different at lunchtime, make sure we eat properly, nourish ourselves? This is all about nourishing ourselves. And I talked to a client recently about um, uh, she was talking about fuel tanks and we were talking about feeling like we're running on empty. We're running on empty at the end of the year. So we started talking about, well, how do you fuel your tank? And that's what I ask all my clients when they're working from home. How are you going to fuel your tank today? What are your non-negotiables that you're going to put in place 
that will keep the fuel going emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. What's going to keep you going today? Keep it short term, particularly in a global pandemic. Keep it short term. <laughs> no, I, I do love the idea of breaks. I, I like my breaks. <laughs> mm. Me too, me too. And I and you know, they don't need to be for very long. Um, you know, when the when the weather was even in the autumn, and I still do it now if it's a dry day, I'll take a chair outside in the garden. I'm fortunate enough that I have got some green space, and I'll sit there with a with a blanket over my knees and I'll have my soup for my lunch, and I will just sit in the garden and it might be literally 20 minutes, it might be no more than that, but it's a break. And that is fantastic for optimizing our brain performance for the rest of the day. Oh, that That's fantastic, Lucy. And I, I just wanted to check, is there anything that we've missed or any sort of other uh, things that you'd like to talk about? I think we've, we've actually covered a lot of ground in this, uh, in, in our session. Mm. I think we have covered an awful lot of ground. I think when I when I look back at what we've talked about, we've talked through mindset, we've talked through this idea of fixed and growth mindsets, the idea of reframing our thoughts as well, and the power of being able to do that. We've talked a lot about baby steps, and I think that's one of the key things that I would recommend is anything that we want to change in our lives is taking small steps. We've talked about generating positive emotions through gratitude and savoring as well, and having realistic, op uh, realistic optimism for the future too. And we very much talked both in the scenario of not having a job and looking for a job, but also in the working from home scenario is having some sort of routine and schedule and really being clear about what's going to energize me today. So take it day by day and think today, what are my non-negotiables that are going to give me that energy that I need to get through this period so I think we've covered a lot in this session. It's been really delightful to talk about it too. Talk about the things I'm passionate about. <laughs> I feel completely energized now, Lucy. I want to do another podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> I've really enjoyed it, Harsha. Thank you. Excellent. Um, so before we go, um, obviously you, you have a website, uh, transformthrive.co.uk. Uh, I think you're yeah. on, on LinkedIn as well. Is there any other way that people, obviously this will all be in the show notes, but is there any other mm. way that people can get in touch with you if they just want to reach out or talk about yeah. neuroplasticity, whatever? Absolutely. Yes. Well, so they can contact me through my website. They can email me as well at lucy.whitehall at transformandthrive.co.uk. And I'm uh, more than happy if people are interested in my newsletter, which I, I send out lots of tips and hints every sort of seven or eight weeks. I'm on LinkedIn and very active on LinkedIn. And uh, I'm experimenting with Instagram at the moment as well, which is uh, a little bit more personal, not, not always professional. So I talk about my passion, uh, my passion at the moment for getting outdoors and swimming in cold water. Uh, so wow. people can get to know both my work and my personal life through my Instagram account if they're interested in that too. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been thinking about going on Instagram, um, you know, just in terms of spreading knowledge as well. So it'd be interesting to have a chat with you offline about that, Lucy. That would that would be great. Mm. But Lucy, mm. Lucy, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I have really enjoyed it's I think it's been over over an hour that we've chatted and it's just flown by. You know, it really has been <laughs> you know, so much fun. And and as I said at the beginning, 
I was really inspired by that, the course that I, I went on with you five years ago. And that really helped to, that, that was a sort of catalyst for my personal development journey. So, you know, really appreciate um, that that course. And, and obviously we've been in touch. So, you know, thank you for, for all of that. And yeah, it's, it's really, I, I've really enjoyed um, going through this journey. And, you know, without you wouldn't have started, I doubt, this podcast or and learn how to be a podcaster <laughs> three months ago I, I wasn't even thinking about this but it I think it just it just does show the power of possibilities and and almost giving yourself permission to step outside your comfort zone because it may not be the greatest but I think we all have something to share and I think as long as you're being authentic about it um, and you're doing things for the right reasons then most people don't really have a a problem with that I hope anyway Mm, absolutely well it's been a, it's been a total honor to be involved today i've really enjoyed it the hour has flown thank you harsha no no thank you lucy that's great you take care bye you too bye-bye <laughs> thank you so much for listening and staying to the end that was such an enjoyable interview with lucy i do hope that you enjoyed learning more about her journey if you would like to listen to more episodes then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.